reading God's word together tonight. The reading comes from Matthew, oh sorry, no, Mark. Book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 to 29. So I'll let you find that. There's some Bibles under the seats in front of you, or you might have your Bible app. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 29. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and is in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed by their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, No money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to to have John arrested, and he had bound him and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his 
dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her on oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she said. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Well, hello, Night Church. Hey, it's good to be together, eh? At the end of a long, wet weekend and a long, wet week. Can you keep your Bibles open? Um, page 1007, I think it is. Mark chapter 6, in any case. I'm going to pray and we'll get right to work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. I thank you that they speak to us. Thank you that they penetrate our souls and we have always got things to learn. So give us teachable hearts and attentive minds this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easy to make people dislike you, and you can do it quite quickly as well. Um, Business Insider magazine, one of my favourites, uh, recently reported 14... <laughs> I, I, I like that you laughed at that. Um, reported 14 things people do that make them instantly unlikable. For example, even something as benign as inserting a smiley face emoji in an email leaves a less than favourable impression, as does offering a kind of limp handshake, as does not smiling. Fair enough, you say. Getting too nervous, acting too nice, also makes you quickly unlikable. I thought they might be disarming, but apparently everyone hates a humble bragger. Friends, what you do online counts as well. If you share too many photos on social media, that is a definite no-no if you want to be popular. Specifically, friends don't like it when you have too many photos of family. Family don't like it if you have too many photos of friends. According to a Californian study from 2012, posting a profile photo too close up from, say, 50 centimetres makes you look far less trustworthy, attractive and competent than if you're photographed just a little bit further away. Disclosing something extremely personal early on in a relationship doesn't work, but neither does asking people questions without talking about yourself at all. That is, if you want to be liked. I mean, I would admit to doing that last thing, but it sounds a bit too much like humble bragging, so I'm not going to. But even having a hard-to-pronounce surname can really put people off. I'm sorry if that's you. Now, here's the thing. I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you one thing that will almost certainly get you unliked. Being a prophet. Saying uncomfortable but necessary things on behalf of God is a surefire, fast track to rejection. And we see that in three ways in tonight's passage. Jesus offends, the disciples are rejected, John the Baptist is beheaded. And yet within these three related incidents, there are some hidden and powerful reasons to hope and persevere. So friends, it's worth a close listen today to the problem of prophets. 
We are about midway through our course in Mark's Gospel this term. Remember, we picked it up at the start of chapter 4 where we left off last year and we will finish at Easter time in chapter 8, the midway point of the Gospel. But today we're in chapter 6 and the prophets are having problems. Jesus, his disciples, that is his representatives, and John the Baptist, whose ministry paved the way for Jesus. And so firstly today, Jesus offends. He is offensive and it's a special kind of offense that is reserved for a hometown hero who becomes a hometown zero. Now in verse 1, Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth, that is, with his disciples. Verse 2, he teaches in the synagogue. Mark tells us there in verse 2, have a look, that many who heard him were amazed. Now that is the same reaction that we have seen earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 1. So things sound good. In chapter 1, the amazement of the gathered crowd who heard Jesus bred further interest in Jesus to the point where there was standing room only. In fact, not even. And he had to withdraw to the countryside or preach from boats, things like that. But what's different here is that within the space of two verses, the amazement of his home crowd turns to offence. And if you look carefully, they're not only offended by his teaching, they take offence at him. And the conversation goes something like this in verses 3 and 4. Where did, where did he get this wisdom? You know, where did he get this power to do these miracles? Great question to ask if you're asking it open-mindedly. And we've been doing just that as we've traced through Mark's gospel week by week. And it's clear to us the answer is, well, it's from God. Right? Jesus quiets the basic elements of creation, the wind and the waves of the power of God. He exorcises demons by the power of God. Even the demons recognize his divinity. They say things like, what do you want, Jesus, son of the most high God? And yet you sense that these folks with whom Jesus had grown up, they weren't asking it quite as open-mindedly. It's like this, right? Isn't he the carpenter? Isn't that Terry's lad, Jono? Didn't he fix our drains the last time they got blocked? We play footy with his brothers, Hamo and Danny. Oi, Karen. I just wanted to put Karen in there. <laughs> now you say it, you can't stop laughing. Karen, don't you do Pilates with his sister Cindy? So they start amazed, but actually very soon they take offense. And what they're saying is, we know you. We know you. We grew up alongside you, Jesus. You're one of us. You are not one better than us. So don't come back here with your entourage, and your highfalutin talk about the kingdom of God and repent and believe and all that. And Jesus' reply to them in verse 5, I think has import to us as well. Let's read it together. Jesus says to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And the text tells us that he could do few miracles there, not because his miracle working powers, you know, couldn't get 5G in that remote location, but because their faithlessness did not provide a conducive environment for miracles. Now, I want you to notice something important. This means their hard heartedness, right? Their familiarity that, that bred contempt, we know you, Jesus, actually stops them from seeing further evidence of his divinity. It robs them of the chance to understand his central position in the kingdom of God. And the reason why Jesus' reply is of import to us as well is because those of us who have been in church for a long time, that's a fair swag of us here tonight, 
can also experience a familiarity that breeds contempt. A familiarity with Jesus that prevents us from hearing him afresh. We can be tempted, that is, contempted, to think we know every story, we have heard every parable, we have heeded every instruction. And that robs us and that stops us from seeing and hearing new things that we haven't seen or heard before. It dulls us to new things God might want to teach us or old things that we need reminding of. And so the episode ends in verse 6 with Jesus taking his own turn to be amazed, except this time it's at the lack of faith amongst his own relatives and neighbours. Friends, let that not be true of us here. Well, that's Jesus. He's offensive. Secondly today, we see the disciples' rejection, or, or at least we hear of it in anticipation, if not seeing it necessarily playing out that way. So the disciples are rejected, and once again, it's when they share a message that calls for repentance. They experience the same problem as prophets. You speak and you get not light. Now look carefully at verse 6, which is kind of cut in half by a heading in our Bibles. Look how it reads as a single verse, verse 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. You know, in the original language, it reads more like this. And he was amazed at their lack of faith, and he went around teaching from town to town. In other words, no giving up, right? No licking of the wounds, no time for reflection to capture the key learnings. Just get on with it. And in fact, he increases the reach of his ministry by getting the 12 disciples to get on with it in verses 7 to 13. And they go out really as his representatives, now, I think we are familiar with the idea of representatives, aren't we? Our politicians serve us as representatives in the House of Representatives. Uh, on the northern beaches, there are representative sports teams everywhere. You don't even have to be good at sport to make it into a rep team. You've just got to have pushy parents, right? <laughs> you laugh because it's true. But think of the disciples more like sales representatives. They represent a business, and they're trying to win contracts or sales from perspective prospective customers so i read a story this week about a couple of sales representatives they pulled up early 45 minutes early to their prospective customer to demonstrate data technology services right really straightforward it was a hot summer day so they went to get a frozen drink at the convenience store think slurpee at 7-eleven one got a large frozen cherry drink the other got a large frozen lime flavored drink took their drinks back to the customer's building, and they sat in the visitor's car park just quietly going over their sales pitch, happily sipping away at their drinks until it was time for the demo. Just as they were about to get out of the car, they looked at each other and realised their mistake. One had bright red lips, mouth, teeth, gums. The other had bright green mouth, lips, teeth, gums, and it wouldn't wash out, so they had no choice but to go into the customer as they were. Apparently, everybody laughed on their way into the building because they looked rather like they were representing a circus, not a serious data technology firm, and they were never asked back. That is, they were rejected. And so the question we want to know is, will the disciples fare any better? Would they make a better go of being Jesus' representatives? Well, apparently so. If you look at the text carefully, Jesus sets them up pretty well. Right? Verse 7, he divides them into pairs, which is nice because everybody needs a buddy. But actually that conforms their mission to the kind of mosaic regulations, which said everything must be established by the, the presence or by the witness of two or three eyewitnesses. They're given the same authority over demons that we've 
just previously, previously seen Jesus have over a demon-possessed man. We'll come back to him in a moment. And Jesus says, look, you, you've got to depend totally on God for food and shelter. Travel light, right? No bread, no money, not even an extra shirt for when it gets cold at night. Okay, so they're basically relying on God to supply a hospitable host who would in turn supply food and lodging. Now, at this junction, it's worth pointing out that these instructions are specific to these disciples for this particular mission. But isn't it true that whenever you share something of your faith in Jesus, you depend on God, don't you? Don't you have to? I think so. And don't you think it will be of help to us if we travel light, as it were, not letting our possessions, perhaps more importantly, not letting our reputations weigh us down too much? Well, how did the disciples go? Verse 12 and 13. They went out, read along with me, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So you read that and you go, pretty good. No clowning about amongst the disciples. But I wonder if you notice when Fiona read it, that within Jesus' instructions there is a hint they would not experience wholesale acceptance. And so he prepares them for rejection and failure as much as for success. Read verse 11 with me. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so it seems to me, friends, that the disciples would share the same problem of prophets that Jesus has just experienced. Not every place, certainly not every person, would welcome them or listen to them. And in that case, they were to do this kind of dramatic act, right, where they would shake the dust off their feet. I didn't know this, but apparently Jews who traveled outside of Israel in those days would carefully kind of remove the dust from their shoes and clothing to avoid polluting themselves or the promised land itself upon their return. So the disciples were effectively declaring an unwelcome village to be like a pagan land. And you can imagine that sort of theatrical act of shaking the dust off was designed to provoke the thoughts of the villagers who had just rejected them as much as it was a sign of judgment against them. But even so, what is clear is that these representatives of Jesus would experience what he experienced, some fruit, some life, some belief, but also some rejection, some refusal, some hard-heartedness. They experienced the same problem of prophets that Jesus experienced, that is rejection. And so you'd have to say, they represented him rather well. Now, if you were in any doubt as to whether the part and parcel of being a prophet is rejection, then look no further than the life and the beheading death of John the Baptist, which Mark flashes back to here. King Herod, at least that's how Herod views himself, it's actually more of a tetrarch, more of a provincial ruler, still a powerful guy, was disturbed by this growing reach of Jesus and his little team of representatives. He even wondered in a fairly paranoid kind of way whether Jesus might be the resurrected figure of John the Baptist, who was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He was the one who prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus. And so Mark recounts a deceitful plot that culminates in the beheading of John the Baptist in, in gruesome detail. It is gruesome, isn't it? Five or six times it talks about the head of John the Baptist or beheading John the Baptist. 
couple of other things worth drawing out. Have a look at verse 20. Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man. He knew he was a good guy. Verse 21, he even liked to listen to John. But because John had criticized Herod's unlawful marriage to his brother's wife, like her, she wanted him dead. And seeing her chance, she grabbed it. And ultimately, Herod had John beheaded. I mean, it is so dark, but darkly intriguing as well. Herod knows John is good. And he even likes him, even though John is prepared to give him some stick. And yet Herod still has him killed because he was afraid of what his friends or his dinner guests might think. Can you see it's just the problem of prophets all over again, just intensified in John's experience, right? They, they speak a message from God. They experience rejection. I read a commentator this week. That's like a serious Christian thinker who describes this story as a parenthetical account. You know, parentheses, brackets, saying it's a bit in brackets you don't really need to know about. <laughs> I think rubbish, man. This account of John's death is key. It's like a mini passion narrative. It's a, it's a shorter version of suffering and death that totally prefigures and anticipates what will happen to Jesus himself. Sure, there's talk of resurrection in this section, but you would have to say... The lasting impression of the head of John the Baptist on a platter is one of rejection and death. And so John not only prepares us for the ministry of Jesus in a most wonderful way, he also prepares us for the rejection and the death of Jesus. And at this point, you're probably thinking, like those people out the back who just walked away, maybe I should have stayed home. No prophet is honoured in his hometown. Shake the dust off your feet. I want his head on a platter. You think we've got a skills shortage in our labour market. I can't imagine it was easy finding prophets in Jesus' day. But friends, let me tell you something. Here's the thing. The problem of prophets is our problem too if we trust in Jesus. Just to a smaller degree. Though we are not the same as the disciples, no delusions of grandeur, certainly not John the Baptist, is it not the case that we too are entrusted with the message of Jesus as his representatives? Which means that whenever we speak, whenever we respectfully share anything of that message, we must anticipate rejection in some form and to some degree. I want us to go back to the demoniac, um, that is the, the, the guy that was demon-possessed in Mark 5. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. The guy from whom Jesus exorcised a legion of demons, right? A, a veritable army of terrors, sending them into a herd of pigs, which then drowned in the lake. Do you remember that story? Not yet if you remember that story. Great. It's nice to be with all seven of you. And um, do you remember, though, the, the, the I mean, it's lovely, it's beautiful picture of this man after Jesus had restored him. Do you remember that? where he is seated calmly, he's dressed appropriately, he's behaving normally. Now, Bruce finished by calling us to pray for the clear presence of evil in that uh, passage is a startling reminder that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the power of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. That is absolutely correct, absolutely but it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't tell this man to pray and he doesn't tell him to begin his own ministry of exorcism. 
And Jesus won't even let him join the, the rest of the disciples after Jesus had been rejected by the people of that town, after he'd had his own kind of shake the dust off your feet kind of moment. Do you remember how he finishes Jesus to the man? Mark chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus did not let him, that is, did not let the formerly demon-possessed man follow him, but instead said, go home to your own people. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that's the ten towns, how much Jesus has done for him. I'm really wary of um, what I call bolt-on applications because there, there are three things that irritating preachers like me have a habit of bolting on to every sermon, right? Regardless of the passage, regardless of the topic. You know, we're always saying read your Bible more, pray more, share your faith more. <laughs> and I'm wary because from Jesus' parables in Mark chapter 4, we've already said let's read our Bibles more and make sure that we're hearing God clearly. From Mark chapter 5, we said, let's pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. From Mark chapter 6 tonight, I've already said, let's share our faith in Jesus for we are his representatives, even if it means rejection. I mean, I'm, that's all three of them in about as many weeks. And, and, and friends, I, look, I just... I'm trusting that these applications aren't just randomly and thoughtlessly bolted on, but you can see that each of them flow deeply out of the, the part of the scriptures that we are giving ourselves to this evening. And though today I've focused on the problem facing prophets or the problem facing anyone who brings the word of God to people, that is the problem of rejection, I want us to see that there is good reason also to be hopeful. Because as Jesus sends his disciples out two by two, they didn't only meet with rejection, but also with acceptance, presumably faith. You think back to Mark chapter 5, where the townspeople pleaded with Jesus to leave them after he had exorcised the demons, casting them into a herd of pigs. By the way, when Jesus leaves, that is the worst case scenario imaginable. Because any hope that you have for life and the life to come leaves when Jesus leaves. Friends, if you don't trust in Jesus, I want to say his message is a message of life. And you want to give attention to it and not ignore it. But it's a worst case scenario when he leaves and you think any hope contained in his message leaves with him, except he also leaves this restored, formerly demon-possessed man who began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And I wonder if you can remember how that, how that whole passage ends. And all the people were amazed. They reject Jesus. They say, go away. I think he's used to that. But by the end of the passage, they are amazed themselves. So as well as anticipating rejection, we ought to expect, I think, interest, intrigue, and even belief. Now, if I can go back to the restored demon-possessed man one final time, I think he provides a clue as to how we might share the message of Jesus. And, and Bruce mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth expanding upon. Jesus says to the demon-possessed man, now healed, tell your own people how much the Lord has done for you. Bruce's one-liner, I mean, he sort of just mumbled it. He said, don't tell people how they should live. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. 
I think it's an excellent guide to sharing the message of Jesus. Tell people how much he has done for you. It might open up the chance for you to share with them their need to repent, that is to turn to Jesus without it sounding nasty or judgmental or resentful. I know we are not treated fairly in the media, often painted as villains, unfairly tainted and taunted for what we are against. We're against gay people always. We're against trans people always. It's not true and it's not fair. And in our workplaces and perhaps our university campuses, it seems like every minority is protected and celebrated except Christians who are mocked and censored. Friends, in our personal interactions, I'm talking about our interactions one-on-one, that sort of thing. We can tell people what we are for, not what we are against. And we can share with people the positive difference Jesus has made in our lives. We are allowed to talk about ourselves. No one can take that away from us. So you might be able to say, for example, His blood has washed away my sin. I was once an enemy. Now I'm seated at His table. It's a picture of a marvelous reconciliation where we are now friends with God. You might be able to share something like that. You might be able to say something like, Jesus has made me more grateful and content. He's made me more patient and humble. Like I know I'm not that patient, I'm not that humble, but you should have seen me earlier. He's made me persevere. He's helped me to persevere in my marriage, with my children, with my parents, with my illness, with my study, with my work. I am less anxious because I know he is control, in control. I am less self-absorbed because I know how much He loves me. I don't have to chase around, flitting around, trying to garner everyone's acceptance because I know He accepts me. I can serve others because He has so served me. Or whatever it might be that you can say about yourself. When I was a youth minister, just after the invention of the wheel, We, we would take uh, school leavers on a mission trip to Vanuatu. It's a wild and beautiful place. And we'd do some building work in the jungle. Don't think it was very good. And then we would go sit on a beach for a few days. We were much better at that. And I remember one day talking with one of the local fellas by the coast. Uh, and we were looking off at an island just off the coast. And he told me that his people came from that island. And so I asked him if anybody lived on the island anymore. He said they didn't. They all moved back to the mainland. I asked him why. He literally said when the missionaries came and brought the gospel, the people stopped eating each other. It's a wild and beautiful place. He was saying it's safe to return. Now, friends, missionaries, they, they cop a lot of stick for bringing Western problems to the lands that they visit. But when the missionaries brought the good news about Jesus to that part of Vanuatu, the people stopped hunting each other, they stopped killing each other, and they stopped eating each other. In a way, in a, in a wild and beautiful Vanuatu kind of way, he was just telling me all that Jesus had done for them. And I'm just saying that we can do that too. Now, I was uh, in a seminar with Americans this afternoon, uh, a bunch of people from a group called Barna Research, super smart people, right? And they were 
talking about how the, the rate of anxiety, depression and loneliness has skyrocketed in Gen Z, as they call it, Gen Z. And it's pretty high with the other generations as well, to be honest. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, Scott, and, and you're telling me you want me to round up the few people that I know and like and tell them all the, all the problems God has with their lives. I'm not telling you to do that at all. I'm just saying, go to your own people and share with them what the Lord has done for you. And we can do that in our personal interactions with our own people, with our friends, our family members. Maybe you can even do that with your parents, with work colleagues. And I get you might need to be careful with teammates. I mean, surely this week, right, in, in a week where we've seen Russia shelling a nuclear plant, <laughs> I mean, where we've seen photos of northern New South Wales that look apocalyptic, even the untimely and sudden death of Shane Warden. Surely those things open up little opportunities in conversations if you're looking for them and if you've been praying for them to share what the Lord has done for you. You know, we actually do that as we gather here on Sundays. Uh, all day long, people have been walking past, looking in, looking in, wondering who is this people that seem to worship Jesus? It's a, it's a powerful testimony to the people of Manly about what Jesus is doing with us. And as we do that, no doubt people will, some people will dislike us, maybe even quickly. That is, after all, the problem that prophets have always faced. But I'm just saying there's also good reason to be optimistic and hopeful, finding hope, interest, intrigue, and perhaps even belief. Friends, that is the problem of prophets and uh, Laura is now going to lead us in prayer and then we're going to finish by singing a couple of songs.